apologize then if our uh, lizard-like conditions in here this morning. But I'm preparing for the uh, crowds when they come later. Would you say? <laughs> well, it depends. It depends how much fire and brimstone I preach. <laughs> All right. Well, now that we've had our laugh, let us uh, pray. Our God and our Father, we give you praise. We thank you, O Lord, for your faithfulness. Um, we thank you for your kindness that has raised us up out of the depths of death into life in your spirit. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, O Lord, to uh, stand strong and be comforted by the truth of your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, I want to just remind everybody we are uh, now in the uh, summertime schedule for Sunday school, which means that we are taking up the uh, uh, where we left off with the book of Psalms. And I, I hope that's not a discouragement to you to say, oh, well, we're not, we don't have this regular, this regular uh, grouping of teachings, but rather we're, um, you know, we're, we're studying God's word, his psalm book. I, I want to take just a minute to uh, remind us of the importance of why we should study the psalms, read the psalms. Um, th- this is God's hymn book that he wrote for himself, that Jesus himself sang uh, to the Father, uh, to the Spirit, in relationship with him and himself. And God has instructed us to know and to sing these hymns. And so I think it's important when we look at it uh, that we should study it, we should think of these things, we should be listening to uh, psalms being sung, we should, of course, sing them in our own service. And, you know, the, the challenge of today often is there's parts of the Psalms where, where um, the, quote, modern mind or modern sensibilities um, are uncomfortable with. Um, you know, I am surprised that at every turn um, how often those, those, those kinds of thoughts are. I, I, I'm not quite comfortable with speaking in those terms. But it's in fact what God's word uh, says. Uh, how many guys know that there was the big book sale yesterday? I don't know where it was. Big book sale. Nobody. Yes. Okay. Um, but I, I I couldn't go. I needed to be here uh, working on stuff, and uh, I asked my wife, you know, just take a look at the the uh, religious section and see if you see anything, or history section, see if you see anything that. You know that it's the kind of stuff I'd get, or might, or something I already have that you know I'll give away. I often do that. I can find duplicates cheap that I can give away. And uh, when she came back, I said, "Well, did did, did I get any loot?" And uh, she said, "No, no." But there was this really big section uh, on uh, Bishop Spong, and he's a guy who uh, it was a. Anglican or Episcopal bishop in the Northeast here, and I only bring him up, by the way, his section was in the controversial religious authors section, which I'm at least glad for that, uh, but uh, I actually own a couple of his books already for research purposes only. Um, I keep them tucked away behind my desk, and of course, a couple of you can say, I want to see what else he's got in that section. Um, it's not that big, 
But uh, Bishop Spong says this, uh, probably there's a lot of things that he says that are problematic, but one of the things he, he often repeated was, you know, man has evolved. We are better than some of the things in the scripture. Especially, we really have to do away with this barbarous thing called the cross and all that stuff that Jesus uh, did bleeding and, and suffering. We don't need that. We're beyond that. Okay? And I know that's an extreme because we're all sitting here and right the hairs go up on the back of our neck and you can't imagine someone being a leader in any church saying those kinds of things. But the reality is, for all of us, we, we, we get in places where we um, let it seep in just a little bit, right? I don't know about that. I don't know that I could pray that way. I don't know that I could sing that way. And it's actually the words of God. And I'll, I'll, I'll make one caveat here to say, sometimes make sure you understand it rightly. Go find two or three credible witnesses to, to look for an understanding to make sure that you are actually reading it and understanding it um, the way that it was intended. And I simply say that is true. After you do that, if it remains the same, then the thing to change is yourself in reference to that scripture. Okay? You have to submit, we, all of us together, have to submit ourselves to this. So we're picking up with Psalm 12. Uh, from last year, we got through Psalm 11. Uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do to get through, not in a rushed fashion, but a psalm every week if possible. And at this rate, this means I'm committed to like 23 years of being here so that we can get through the whole book of Psalms. Um, <clears throat> I, I would certainly love to be here uh, that long. But uh, I must say that as I, uh, as I went through and, and studied Psalm 12 in more depth, I was actually surprised about how I could see its application for us today. And we'll get into that in just a minute. Who would like to read Psalm 12 is short? Would you read it nice and loud for everyone to hear the whole psalm? And then up before you begin, please tell us... Um, what uh, what uh, version of the scriptures you're reading? What's that? Yeah, your son. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. So Psalm 12 is divided up 
into two sections. There's two parts. The first one is a complaint with an expression of desire. And that takes us down through verse 4. And then beginning at verse 5, we see a promise with an expression of confidence and hope. So two sections. One is coming and expressing a desire before God, right? Um, But it's a complaint. Here I am. I'm dealing with all this stuff. uh, And then um, I have a desire that you bring relief. And then uh, on the other half, it is a promise with an expression of confidence. So we see that there's a promise of God and we can rest in hope. And of course, I want to again emphasize the Christian hope is not like how the modern day person uses the word hope. I hope that my lunch is ready when I get home today and that it'll taste good, right? I can hope that, but that doesn't mean that the, uh, the oven won't burn it up or that we didn't season meat properly or something of that nature. Um, Instead, the Christian hope is a sure thing. And actually, if you look in Webster's Dictionary, um, I'd say, I don't know about newer versions, but certainly ones that you could still get in the 90s. You could look up the word hope. You'd find four definitions. And the fourth one was uh, simply that the Christian hope, that is, the sure thing that is found in Christ towards eternity, something to that effect. But it is a sure thing as opposed to wishful thinking. And so uh, we, we want to recognize this here. So we have uh, in the first verse, to the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. And I'm going to pause there and just remind you what we talked about last year. And that is when you see these headings, right, these headings were put into the scriptures as if um, it is simply the word of God. These aren't notations later. Put in. I grew up reading these, see, think, seeing these, and thinking that they were notations, um, and they're notations in one sense, but but simply disregarding them and recognizing that this has always been part of the scripture since it's been recorded down, and so we see both. You know, it's written to the chief musician on eight-stringed harp, um, and it is a psalm of David. It goes on and says, "Help, Yahweh." For the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. So when we look at this, first of all, I want to always remind you, when you see Lord in all capitals, that's that's Yahweh. Um, it's an expression of the, the name that God gives himself to identify himself as the God of his people. And so the cry of help is going to the specific name of God. And it says, for the godly man ceases, right? And, and in this, there, the, the way you can, can look at this and understand, it, it's really talking about how the faithfulness of godly men have, has already begun to fail. When, when you kind of tarry with that Hebrew a little bit, you see that tension in there where it's, it's not just like it stops, but it has already begun to fail. And why is it failing? Well, because they are, for the faithful disappear disappear from among the sons of men. That is because of the exposure to the maliceness or the malice of the wicked, right? So 
the, 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 the wicked are coming against them. They're around, you know, the sons of men, this expression. These are people that are not following God. And because of that, the faithfulness of godly people, God's people, are beginning to fail. Um, and, of course, what's being done to them, okay, it's unprovoked injury. It's sort of like in a revenge fashion. It's done out of spite. Now, if I want to kind of tag this into what we might be experiencing in our culture, can we say that there are some people in churches where their faithfulness is beginning to, to fail or to wane because there are people out there who are um, full of malice towards God's people, trying to bring about injury to God's people, revenge they're saying and doing things out of spite, sound at all what you might be thinking you hear out there? Anyone? <clears throat> so, um, this is kind of the setup. So he's calling out to God. He's talking about the fact that it has impact on the faithfulness of God. And you know, If we can be honest, we know the scriptures tell us do not grow weary in well-doing, right? right? Sometimes we start to think is what I'm doing coming to any good? Have you ever asked yourself that question? I, I think so. I know I have. Um, so when we are feeling that way, this psalm is admonishing us, call upon Yahweh, call upon our God. Ver That's right. And she's got my conclusion already that I got at the end there. <laughs> it, it must be all those years of wisdom. She knows how to go right to the point. <laughs> Thank you. So it, verse 2 says, They speak, that is the wicked, the sons of men, they speak idly, everyone to his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. Um number of things going on here. Can someone please look up Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. As soon as you have it, just go ahead and read it down. So we have a comparison of what the sons of men and what the sons of God do, right? The sons of men, they're going out, and how do they speak to their neighbor? They're speaking idly. They are, they are out there speaking to their neighbor, and they're doing it with flattering lips, and, a, and with a double heart, they speak, okay? Um, this, uh, this flattery, it's interesting because... You know, we can consider that that this that these lips, it's kind of with a smoothness to everyone. So those that are going against the people of God, they are speaking with a certain amount of smoothness to your friends, your neighbors, your family, right? And what, what's their purpose? They're trying to drive those who ought to be your natural, uh, your natural kin against you. Right. So and how are they doing it? 
they're doing it with a, a smoothness, right? With enough flattery. You know, one of the problems with certain kinds of, of Christians is this. Haven't you ever seen them act this way? See, they're, they're really against you. They're, they're trying to turn the, the, those that are listening against the, the, the people of God. And, of course, we're told as Christians that we're not to speak that way in Ephesians 4, right? We are one body. We're, we are to speak properly and in loving and in truthful ways uh, to, to one another. This uh, double of heart, uh, it reminds us of diverse weights, which is an abomination before God. A double heart, it's, it's dishonest weights. You look at uh, Deuteronomy twenty-five, thirteen. I guess I'm gonna look that up. Deuteronomy twenty-five, thirteen. So, and, and we we see not just in the, the Pentateuch, but we also see throughout Proverbs and throughout the Scriptures, God is constantly dealing with having two scales, uh, having unjust weights, um, cheating people. And when we tell lies, especially against God, but against anybody, we are cheating people by not giving them the truth. And so um, that double heart, that's, that, that's like having unjust weights. Um, of course, we can, we can see that... Uh, as we consider this this flattering lips, I was brought to reflect a little bit on uh, Genesis chapter 11. Okay, this word lip can be understood as culture and religion, right? Or the religious culture. If you look at Babylon, it says they were of one language and one speech. That really, that, that was the word lip, which we can see elsewhere um, where it shows us that this is about a religious culture. Now, this is interesting when you think about it. So this flattering smoothness of lip is really motivated by their religious culture. Because remember, everything is religious. You're either, what did Jesus say? You're either with me or you're against me. And that holds true not just for the wicked, but for the righteous too. Right? And we shouldn't have double weights. Our hearts shouldn't be divided. You know, James 1 talks to us about not being double-minded, right? Because what does that do? That creates instability, right? And this is, this is exactly what the wicked are trying to do. They're trying to create instability and cause the faithfulness of God's people to cease. Um, and, and I think if we, we put that in context of what we see today, those that are out there that are maligning the church, that are maligning faithful Christians, that are coming against them, this is exactly what they're trying to do. Okay? And so we, we, I think we can look around us and say, I think this has some very clear applications in terms of how we're to act, but also in terms of looking at what others are doing to the church. Yes, sir.
And, and I can tell you that uh, when I was running the business in Louisiana, at one point I had uh, more than 300 people working for me, and we had to constantly deal with unemployment. And we tried to be very careful to keep documentation, and I probably attended um, and testified in, in, in an almost 10-year period, something like 10 years, probably close to 300 hearings. Okay, and I can tell you the ones that I attended because I had Louisiana and Arkansas. The ones in Louisiana, um, we lost every single time at the first level, every single time. So of those, I'm, I'm going to just do it this way. We'll say 150 of them were in Louisiana. We lost all 150 at the first level. It was just presumed we were the bad guy because we were the employer. I appealed all 150 of those and only lost one of my appeals because of documentation. I only bring that up to say that's a, that's a real obvious kind of thing. That the idea was certainly the employer is to blame here. They have money. They should just pay out. Um, and I think, I, think, I think that what Jonathan brings up is true, and that's just it. Can they find something? Right? That, is, that is a measure of truth somewhere because every good lie has elements of the truth in it. But if it's a partial lie, it's really all a lie. And so what we, what we want to do is say, what does God's word have to say about how to react in these, uh, when these types of accusations are, are being made? And of course, I want to emphasize again here, remember what's driving this is their God and their worship uh, at, you know, uh, to their God. Um, so then we see in verse 3, May Yahweh cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. And so um, it could even be rendered that uh, instead of just may Yahweh cut off, it could really be understood as Yahweh destroy these, these uh, men these, who have these flattering lips. Okay, um, and you know this person that's, that has these flattering lips, culture, and this tongue that speaks of proud things, right? Um, we can see evidence of, of a similar example of this in Isaiah twenty-eight verse fifteen. Isaiah twenty-eight verse fifteen. I'd like to read that. So, so they're boasting that they have built this, this fortress with strong lies and deception. Who can ever do anything to us? That sounds pretty presumptuous. Um, I would point out here that, that if you think about the Lord to cut off the flattering lips or that, that, that Yahweh could destroy um, th these types of flattering lips, I want you to think in two ways of this. God could come down simply in judgment and wipe them out. Or they're, they're in death. He could raise them up into life 
in himself. Right? So destruction could be death to resurrection, right? Or it could simply be in full judgment. So I, I think we, we can remember, we can pray this way. When we say to the Lord, destroy these flattering lips, part of that is to say, Lord, I'm not going to draw the vengeance, right? I'm looking to you to do the just thing, right? And so perhaps part of that destruction is to bring bring them to death so that they may be resurrected into life in God himself. Um, we then see in verse 4, and it's kind of connected with verse 3, um, right? So they they've they have flattering tongue that speaks things, and then they say, who have said, this is what they've said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? This is what they're saying. You know, Now you can really hear that passage out of Isaiah, right? You can hear that passage there of Isaiah 28. We built this fortress. Um, again, I would, I would point out I think if you if you look at this word lips here and you think about it in terms of the religious culture that they have, that their religious culture is their own. It's a strong fortress. Their ideology, um, it's it's my fortress. Who can possibly prevail against me? Um, it, they're really saying they have their own sense of religious agency. And I thought that was interesting because as I was looking up, uh, you know, I, I, one of the main things I, I use for this class is, is uh, R.A. Alexander's um, Psalms translated and explained. And I often find myself going to Webster's 1828 dictionary to look at how he defines the words because he uses words, and I know how we understand them today, but he wrote that in the, in the 1850s, 1860s. I need to have a better understanding of what he thinks those words mean. And so I was surprised because, you know, we hear this today very frequently, this word agency being used um, by those that want um, to break away from, you know, they want to have their own sense of agency. And there is a level of, of the personhood that God gives us, that there is a sense of, of who you are as a person, and we're not pushing against that. But what does this mean to say that uh, we know as Christians that we're not our own, right? We're a person, but we're not our own. In Christ, we're a person. We're a single stone in what? The body of Christ that is the, the new temple, right? So there's both the one and the many. And, of course, when they say who is Lord over us, basically they're saying we can accomplish mighty things on our own, and we're going to do this, right? There's no sense of humility there. It's just a sense of there is no one. There is no God or Lord greater than we are, and we're so strong in um, our, our own fortress. Yes, sir.
no, no, I, I absolutely agree. I, I always want us to say this. As often as we hear God's word and we say, yeah, those guys, <laughs> we need to say, yes, <laughs> me, right? How do I not fall into that trap? How, how do I stay from that? Um, I, think is, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I appreciate that as well. So now we're coming up on verse 5. So this is part 2. And it says this, For the oppression okay, of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now I will arise, says Yahweh. I will send him in the safety for which he yearns. I, I want to say, too, that this word oppression here, I don't think is translated strong enough. Right? You can really see this word, it can be rendered as desolation. So you say, the, for the desolation of the poor. Right? Now we've gone from oppression. You know, that sounds like you're carrying a heavy sack of oppressed. Right? When you say desolation, it's like somebody's got their foot on my neck. Right? So, yes, sir. Yes. Exactly. In other words, it isn't like we're just laboring a little bit. No, violence is being taken. Um, that that we're just being uh, crushed uh, in this way, and and so because of the sighing, and and again the sighing is like breath, wind. It's almost like it's so heavy, or the violence is so hard. It's knocked the wind out of me, and all I have is a little bit of breath. Uh, to, to put out. And so who's the needy here? Uh, by the way, oftentimes you need to recognize that this word poor here is not simply about those who have no money. This is about those that are humbly in need before God. right? Because really, at the end of the day, you can have all the money in the world, right? But if you don't recognize your neediness before God in all things, I mean, what saves us? That we cling to Christ and we trust his promises. That's all we have. So I, I want us to recognize this. And, and here it says, Now I will arise, says Yahweh. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Um, I, I just want to make a couple of points here that the uh, I will arise this same phrase, and I know the word now is there, um, but but you can see in, in Old English it would be shall arise. It's, 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 and even will, that's about a future tense. The word now is there as if to say this is going to happen. And in a future tense, this verb here um, is, is uh, you know, it's the same phrase uh, or verb form that is used throughout the prophets, especially in the second half of Isaiah, where God is making all of these future promises about how he's going to redeem Israel and the world and bring the nations uh, to himself. And so uh, I, I part of this is to say now means God hears us, and this will cause him to react because because you think about this, there have been all kinds of situations in the life of Israel, the history of Israel, and let's be truthful, in your very own life, where you ask God for deliverance, right, 
And it may have even been a very righteous thing, a good thing to be asking for this deliverance. And it didn't come right then. It didn't come right then. And you say to yourself, well, I don't know. Well, I think I think part of this we need to realize is, is that God is at work. He does hear the cries of his people. And it is a sure thing that he is going to answer us. But we need to rest in his truthfulness, his faithfulness. And, and if you look at verse uh, 6 there, it says, The words of Yahweh are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace of the earth, purified seven times. Now there's a couple of things going on here. We, can we trust God's truthfulness? Yes. How much can we trust it? His words are so pure. His words are so truthful that it's like silver tried in a furnace. How many times? Seven times. What, is, what does seven indicate to us when we see it in the scriptures? Right? Perfection. And, and I would say there's, there's probably even a, a better word for us to, to embrace, and that is completed, completion, 100%, all the way. Right? And, and I know that's perfection in a way, but sometimes we think of perfection as this unobtainable thing. And I want us to understand that this perfection is completeness. God's words are completely true. 100% of the time. And if he says, if God himself says that he will arise, he will arise. He will step up. And he will bring safety to those uh, for which, who, who yearns? He yearns. Not us. He does. Um, and he goes on and says this in uh, uh Verse uh, 7, you shall keep them, that is God's people, the sufferers, O Yahweh. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. And uh, this word forever is eternity. I, I think sometimes we say forever and it seems fairy tale like and out there. I don't know, for me anyway, eternity sounds um, much more solid, right? That, that, uh, God's going to preserve them throughout to all eternity. Um, this you here is emphatic. Uh, we, we see similar similarities in Psalm 2, verse 6, and Psalm 3, verse 3. And basically, he simply is who he says he is, and he will do, and shall do, and always does what he says he's going to do. Excuse me, in this, this generation, right? And they're preserving them from this generation. This is um, this generation of wicked. And he's going to preserve as long as danger exists. And I think if we think but Yes, sir, did you have a comment? Doesn't, no, it doesn't surprise me, right? Because, because um, 
I, I, right, your, your question is, is how come it doesn't say that in proof of my thesis? Is that what you're saying? Sure. Um, well, I think, I think in, I don't know that it necessarily does. I'd have to think more thoroughly on that, but I think overall the scriptures show this, right, that, that God brings judgment, persecution upon all his people, both the faithful and the faithless, right, to what end? To see that, that uh, his people are purified, that, that his people continue on, and that the nations will no longer blaspheme God because of our inconsistencies. Yes. And, and I had been thinking prior to your question about just the connection to Elijah, right? Elijah says he's persecuted, and there's real persecution there, right? Um, and he, he's, he's, he's down, and the wind's knocked out of him, and he, he runs away, and God says, no, I have 7,000 that I've observed, right? And, and, and how did Israel get in that state? Because the king compromised, and then the king led others in false worship. So, again, it's the people of God worshiping idols, um, being an adulterous people to God that creates the greater narrative of what's happening to the persecuted church. Um, and uh, we, we, you and I could follow up with some more on that a bit later. I want us to, to, to try to wrap up here because we're out of time. Sure. So, so I think, I think God does do that. But in the end, what was God's point that He would be glorified through His servant Job? But I, I, yes, but that's not the only. That's not that's not the only application. In other words, all suffering is simply because you know we're good. I, I think we can all admit we're not. Um, 
but sometimes God is doing things that are going to bring others to Christ, and we suffer in that way. But but um, I'm I'm not I'm not going to yield to the fact that that the church is not repentant enough. We don't live penitent lives, not not holy, and we need to continue to stay in that with that penitent heart. And when the church is faithful to follow God as God says to follow Him, then what happens? The nations stop blaspheming. They look at our good works and they glorify God. They're converted and the nations turn turn to God. So um, I, I'll read the last verse. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Um, and so we can see that on every side, it says, you know, they're walking in liberty and they have, they have all the license in the world to do whatever they want. And they completely surround the people of God. Right now, we feel like if you go out, you go downtown here and you see all the flags and you go into stores and see the displays, they have the liberty, they have the license. Sometimes we feel like we're surrounded, right? And their vileness is exalted like a rising storm. That's what it looks like, Right? But our conclusion needs to be this. The wicked rise and the righteous are treated with contempt. This disgrace is really an exaltation. God has put this dishonor on us, and he too will deliver us. That's kind of what I think what your point was. Any quick responses because we're already six minutes over. Remember this, the world doesn't end with us. There are generations to come in Christ. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we give you praise. We thank you for your mercy that is ever abounding upon us. We thank you that you are faithful, that your words are true, and that we can rest in that. And even though we see the storm rising about us, I pray, O oh Lord, that each one of us would live a penitent life, a life of humility before you, Lord not for our glory and honor, but that you may be glorified so that others may come to know you. We give you praise and ask you to prepare our hearts for worship and the renewal of your covenant promises with us. In Jesus' name, amen.